If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Charles Osgood is taking the weekend off. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday morning. We're midway through Labor Day weekend, a time for honoring all those who work hard to make their American dream come true. But these days, are all of them actually living the dream? Martha Teichner will be looking into that for our cover story. Home movies captured family life for millions of Americans over the years. Now they're capturing the attention of video historians who consider these movies a priceless window into our past. With David Turacamo, we'll be taking a look back. I haven't seen these in 30 years. Remember home movies? They show us Main Street USA and how much it's changed because they actually show how we used to live. And we wouldn't have them without the genius of George Eastman, who created Kodak. We wanted to find a way of making photography easier, and that's how we got into the photography business. Ahead on Sunday morning, how home movies made George Eastman rich and enriched our lives. Rita Braver shows us the unique works of painter Jose Parla. With Steve Hartman, we meet a man who makes music to go. We'll recap some of the highlights of summer 2015 and more. And Goofy... Ahead. Since I've had her, it's, it's not about me anymore. None of this is, you know. We go in search One, of the American dream. Two, three. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Are all our nation's families still living the dream? The American dream, that is, long considered our birthright. A question for our Labor Day weekend cover story, reported by Martha Teichner. The 50s and 60s were good years to celebrate in Port Clinton, Ohio. Prosperous years for the little town on the edge of Lake Erie. Port Clinton's population, 6,000 or so. The local auto parts factory alone employed nearly a thousand. Even without much education, there were well-paid, blue-collar jobs to be had. In 1959, when Robert Putnam graduated from Port Clinton High School, 
valedictorian of his class. Was there a sense that you were living the American dream? That was a golden age for the American middle class. For Putnam, now a professor at Harvard, opportunity for all is the American dream, which he says is in trouble. I mean, look at this, rust and chains. Yeah. Port Clinton, his own hometown, he sees as proof. This is what's left of the auto parts factory. All those jobs, gone. This is a Rust Belt case. So in, in the Rust Belt, of course, the manufacturing disappeared and that undermined the social fabric and the opportunity for kids. But you can find the same thing all over the country, even places that don't have Rust Belt stories. You can't have the American dream if there's not a good, solid economic base for the middle class. A glance at incomes tells the story. Since 1979, a 200% rise for the top one percenters. The gap with everybody else, widening, especially for middle-income households, earning between $42,000 and $82,000. In his recent book, published by CBS-owned Simon & Schuster, Robert Putnam argues that this widening income gap has led to a widening and dangerous opportunity gap based on social class. Children's futures dictated by their parents' affluence and education. It's not just the American economy that's pulled apart, leaving out the middle. It's the American society has pulled apart into rich families and poor families. In the middle of Port Clinton, Adrian Hines smiles down from a billboard advertising her services as a bankruptcy lawyer. When I see clients who have so very little, how do they even contemplate the American dream? Her husband, Scott, is a judge who settles workmen's compensation disputes. The scary part is we realize a, a few bad choices, we could have been them. Which has shaped their definition of the American dream. I think it really comes down to security. And for us, I think that's what the American dream is, is knowing that you are eliminating the worry factor from your life. They live well, but not lavishly on the outskirts of Port Clinton. Their 13-year-old twins, Zoe and Avery, take piano lessons. So I do want to hear how track is going. They have family dinners together. Today wasn't as bad as yesterday, but it was still like... It's track, so... When they talk, education is a common theme. We've taken them to college campuses over spring break. And they're 13. Take they're them to the art museum. I mean, they've been to, what, Europe twice. Do you feel that you're living the American dream? I do. I do. But according to a recent New York Times poll, the number of Americans who still believe in the American dream is slipping. It was 72% in early 2009, at the worst of the financial crisis. 64% this past December, in spite of the improved economy. My mom wasn't around too much as when I was little, so I was mostly in my dad's custody, but he was always running around, so I was raised by my grandmother. Chris Lawson, from a not-so-nice part of Port Clinton, Ohio, did not grow up living anybody's version of the American dream. My dad was, was a little nuts, 
He's, he's locked up right now. Oh, he's in jail? Oh, yeah, he's in prison. His childhood was chaotic, just graduating from high school, a slog. I didn't have many friends in school because I was, was kind of outcast, you know. During the summer months, he does landscape work, but would like a steadier job. So here you go, fishy. In his early 20s, Chris Lawson is not someone you'd expect to be a big believer in dreams. But he is. And goofy. Goofy. Or has been ever since his three-year-old daughter Camille was born. He shares custody with Camille's mother. Since I've had her, it's not about me anymore. None of this is, you know. I just got to make sure she's on the right path and then I'm on the right path to getting her there. Is she your American dream? Oh, yeah, definitely. She's my angel. You just look so happy. I love her. She, she does. She makes me so happy. The flip side of the news that faith in the American dream has slipped to 64% is that 64%, nearly two-thirds of Americans, still do believe in an idea that is often about much more than making money. For immigrants, such as Hussein Tassawar, it can still be a beacon of hope. Everybody, immigrant, have a dream when he come in America about freedom and nice living. A banker in Pakistan, Tassawar left because it was dangerous for anyone who opposed the party in power. He walked to Afghanistan at night to escape. They are my grandchildren. His family now lives in New Jersey. He drives a taxi. Tassawar, all his children and grandchildren, are proud American citizens. You think coming to America gave you the opportunity you were hoping for? Yeah, if you are a hard worker, you can get everything here. His youngest daughter, Saba, started college last week. She will go to the university and she can get opportunity. If she is intelligent, you don't think of it on a day-to-day basis that, wow, my father struggled so much and now he's here. You can just use what you have. But when you think back, it's, I think it's a very respectful and honorable thing. And if you happen to run across Hussein Tassawar's taxi, take a look at the name of the company he works for. Yes, really. Next, the colorful visions of painter Jose Parla. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This Sunday Morning Sun is by Jose Parla, a former street artist whose works are anything but off the wall. In fact, they can now be seen in many a high-profile location, including one of the highest of all. Here's Rita Braver. It is one of the most symbolic buildings in the nation, the new One World Trade Center, rising resolutely after the devastation of September 11, 2001. And what was chosen to greet visitors as they enter? It wasn't a mural about the attacks. This is a mural about moving forward. It's a mural about resilience. From the beginning, artist Jose Parla says he knew it had to be a powerful piece. 
It's a mural about strength and unity. And I see it more about people coming together, like the diversity in New York City. So it celebrates New York. Called One, Union of the Senses, Parla painted it in the sustained burst of impassioned creativity. Over the weeks and weeks and weeks working into it, I started to melt into it. I started to feel like I was one with the canvas. And there was a lot of energy and action in this painting. You know, I was almost tasting the paint with my eyes and I was touching the paint with my ears. And the fact that Jose Parla was commissioned to paint this mural for a public building is slightly ironic, considering that his very first pieces were unauthorized works on public spaces in his hometown of Miami. This is me here on top of the wall, and what I'm doing is I'm coloring the top of the wall upside down. You were little kids. Yeah, I was 10 years old in this picture. 10 years old when Parla became part of what's now known as the graffiti movement. Say what? Yeah! Now he's back to the rear. You he went by the nickname Ease. This I did for my mother on Mother's Day, a mom piece in 1987. What did your mother think? You go out and make her a piece on the wall? You know, it was a mixed feelings of emotion because she was like happy that I did something for her, but then scared that I could have gone to jail for it. And so she was like, you're going to get in so much trouble. Carla did get into plenty of mischief. But child of the hip hop generation, he also had plenty of fun. His parents were Cuban immigrants. It was a high school teacher who spotted his talent and helped Parla get a scholarship to Georgia's Savannah College of Art and Design when he was just 16. To me, it was like winning the lottery because I didn't want to be in school anymore. I, I basically showed up to history and art class. The rest I would skip. Well, welcome to the studio. Well, thank you. It is where else in Brooklyn that he creates his huge canvases which he says are direct descendants of his earlier graffiti works. Every so often, I'm inspired to write the story of my life and what's happening, like as if it was a diary. And the way I'm it But I, I can't in, read yeah. any of the words in here, Yeah, can exactly. I? Well, that's exactly like a diary. You're not meant to read someone's diary. Uh -huh. You know, it has a little lock and key. And it's more about reading the gesture and the layers of memory that's encapsulated within each layer. Today, Parla's large works go for as much as a million, yes, a million dollars. But it was a long, hard road to success. He moved to New York in the late 90s, living a struggling artist's life. You know, I remember at that time even like not having a proper shower. I had a huge bucket. Like I was like in the third world really in Brooklyn, you know. You had a bucket? Yeah, I, I went through pretty rough times, but happy because I was doing what I love to do. In fact, Parla was invited to show his works in places like Tokyo, Hong Kong, Paris, and London, all of it chronicled by his brother and best friend, Ray. But it wasn't until about 10 years ago that New York dealers came calling. His first big New York commission came from the Brooklyn Academy of Music in 2012. A year later, Barclays Center, the huge sports and entertainment arena in Brooklyn commissioned this piece. Harlow was selected in part because the rap mogul Jay-Z is a fan.
Each one I cut by, by hand and, and the tops of them, I, uh, I use paper mache to do all the layering. And in the High Museum in Atlanta. One, two, three. Recently hosted Parla's first one-man museum show. You've got all this that was made for this space. Would you like to see it go somewhere else after here? I'd like to see it stay here because <laughs> it's so beautiful. But Curator Michael Rooks says he understands why Parla's work has started getting so much attention. It's for me about this astonishing juxtaposition of color and line and form and uh, a painting that speaks to the past while also looking forward to the future. Harla just showed his work in Cuba, his old family homeland. And if New York was slow to accept him, well, he's got not one, but two important shows here this month. And at age 42, with a growing list of high-profile pieces, Jose Parla believes he is creating work that will stand the test of time. Does it hurt your feelings at all if people just walk in and they're oblivious and they don't notice this beautiful thing you've made? No, my feelings are beside the point. And you know what? If it doesn't get them coming in, it'll get them coming out. <laughs> Coming up, the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, a survivor's story. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It happened this past week. We received news of the passing earlier this summer of the oldest survivor of the great California earthquake of 1906. Ruth Newman was just four years old when the giant quake hit San Francisco and much of the surrounding area, with a magnitude estimated at anywhere from 7.7 .7 to 8.3. This film, shot just days before the April 18th quake, shows a prosperous and bustling city comparable to anything back east. Pictures taken afterward tell a different story. The quake flattened buildings and touched off fires that burned for three days. 500 city blocks were destroyed. As many as 3,000 people were killed, and some 200,000 were left homeless. As for Ruth Newman and her family, the quake rocked their ranch north of the city, but left their home undamaged. Ruth Newman went on to enjoy a long and healthy life dying at the remarkable age of 113. Her passing leaves just one other earthquake survivor, Bill Del Monte, three months old then, 109 now. Next, Steve Hartman with a globetrotting piano man. to play it a new podcast network featuring radio and tv personalities talking business sports tech entertainment and more play it at play.it we have an order of music to go for your enjoyment served up by our steve hartman catskill park in upstate new york has 700,000 acres of emptiness so of all the things you might expect to see emerging from the morning mist here a guy pushing a piano probably isn't one of them. I think I could do it. And yet, that's exactly what we found. 
a fellow named Dotan Negrin, pushing 400 pounds of piano through the wilderness. Has he never heard of a harmonica? That's why I do it. I do it because not everybody can do it. I do it for the challenge. I do it because... Why not a grand piano? That's a... You're not up for that much of a challenge. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know about that one. <laughs> and really, this isn't just about the challenge of hauling a piano to an improbable place. This is more about the joy it brings once it gets there. Needless to say, for beachgoers, it beats the heck out of listening to someone else's boombox. And for a Dotan, it beats playing pretty much anywhere else. I get to play piano in this amazing setting. It's like this beautiful auditorium. And Catskill Park is just the latest stop in his Piano Around the World tour. He started in 2010, quit his job as an art mover in New York City, and began moving his piano instead. He has traveled literally from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters of Key West. He has taken the thing to South America and Europe too, always finding an unlikely place, even in the most well-traveled cities. Dotan pays for this through tips and donations. That woman just gave me a hundred francs. So far, he has barely broken even, but so far, it hasn't mattered much. I wanted to wake up every morning excited to see what would happen next. That way, like, you know, I, I'm on my deathbed. I can, I can look back and be like, yeah, I did this awesome thing when I was 24. Some pianists dream of Carnegie Hall, but Dotan Negrin dreams even bigger. Ahead, lights, camera, action. Home movies for the ages. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. You needed a projector and screen to enjoy the home movies of an earlier time. Home movies that a modern-day movement is determined to preserve. David Turacamo has everything but the popcorn. At the Durham County Library in North Carolina recently, there was an event celebrating the movies. Uh, not an award ceremony, no. It was a screening of home movies, which I know some of you might think date to the Stone Age. I haven't seen these in 30 years. These are important cultural artifacts. We want to make sure that you're not throwing them away. People brought their movies to screen and have transferred to DVD. It was all sponsored by the Center for Home Movies, a national organization dedicated to the preservation of, well, home movies. Skip Elsheimer is one of the directors of the Center for Home Movies. It's almost voyeuristic in a way to watch somebody else's home movies, but you get to see the common experiences. You get to see how somebody else celebrated Christmas, which is sometimes very different or very much the same. You see, these days we watch ourselves on YouTube and Facebook and document our lives at arm's length. So it's useful to remember that this digital obsession we have actually began with home movies. Now, suppose these were your movies, and on this reel you had movies of, oh, let's say this young lady learning to walk. That'd be worth a fortune, wouldn't it? Kodak made home movies a central part of family life just in time for the baby boom. You really couldn't afford not to shoot them, especially because it was so easy. Even if you've never snapped a picture before, you'll make exciting movies indoors or out with the new Brownie movie camera. The Brownie movie camera is the grandchild of the original Kodak camera, a Brownie for still photographs. 
That was the invention of George Eastman, who created Eastman Kodak. Beginning 130 years ago, when he received his first patent, Kodak's slogan was, you press the button, we do the rest. First of all, if the cameras made a successful image, you're going to use more film. So it really was the film business. Uh, the cameras were the means to, to shoot film. Obviously, they made, you know, they, they made money on the cameras, but the film was a, lo a lot more profitable. Todd Gustafson is curator of technology at the George Eastman House in Rochester, New York. It's an international museum housing 16,000 cameras, projectors, editing, and lighting equipment. The George Eastman House really archives the history of photography, soup to nuts. Today, George Eastman's house itself is a living biography of the man who invented the modern era of photography. Kathy Connor is the curator. Everyone looks at it and says, oh, it's all antiques, it's all old stuff. Eastman didn't like antiques or old stuff. Everything that you're looking at was what was brand new at the turn of the century. He had electric light. Most people had gas light. There was a phone in each room. He had indoor plumbing. He was a scientist, an engineer. He was an inventor. Although Eastman's great invention, a simple camera and easy-to-use film, might never have happened except that as a young man, he was working in a bank and heard it was possible to make money investing in... In some land in Santa Domingo. It was a land rush. It was kind of a risky investment. It was suggested before he do this that he should document the land photographically. So you either have to learn how to take pictures and take them yourself, or you pay for an artist to come with you, draw them, and then sign his name so it's proof that that property does exist. Photography, as we know, was a lot different. At that time, people were doing the wet plate process where the photographer had to be both the photographer and the chemist. Bought all the photographic equipment, his camera, you know, his big tripod. Took a lot of investment of money to be able to do that and then took lessons. He got more, much more interested in photography than in, in investing in land. Uh, sets up kind of shop in his mother's kitchen. He canceled the trip. He never went because he got so into photography and learning how to make it better and be better at it that he, and he also mentioned many times it was Photography chemicals were bad traveling companions. He spilled them on his underwear, his clothes. He ruined things when he was trying to pack them. So we wanted to find a way of making photography easier. And that's how he got into the photography business. Eventually, he was approached by Thomas Edison to create film for motion pictures, 35-millimeter film, which is still the industry standard. But Eastman wanted to take it a step further, to the consumer level. Movie cameras, like the kind used in Hollywood, were big and expensive. The solution? The Cine Kodak. This is where home movies began. Not even half the size of a professional camera, it used the even smaller 16mm film. Introduced in 1923, it may look primitive, but it began a revolution. They had various songs that they would sing to keep time with, uh, but basically 16 frames per second is about right here. And even today, the camera still works. Look, I, I shot this in Central Park. That's the amazing thing, these cameras still work. Yeah, they're, they're, well, they're very well made. Uh, the biggest drawback was the retail price, the equivalent of about $2,000. So in 1926, Kodak introduced the Model B. Instead of hand-cranked, it was spring-wound. So you just flip the lever and it runs. You don't have to worry about the right speeds. So this frees the photographer up to basically hold it at eye level, you know, and, and, and shoot like so. 
for the first time ever, a family could shoot a record of their day at the beach. Color film didn't come in until the 1930s. This footage of Eastman with Thomas Edison, this was an early experiment. And while home movies are great memories for a family, they're also a time capsule. I mean, look at those cars. It's one reason why the Center for Home Movies has sponsored more than 100 events like this all over the world in hopes people will recognize what they have boxed away in their closets. Traditionally, people think that home movies are boring, but they show us Main Street USA and how much it's changed because they actually show how we used to live. It's a cultural history. A last look at summer. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. As the summer of 2015 approaches its unofficial end, we pause a moment to take stock. The top movie at the box office this summer was Jurassic World, which grossed $643 million in the U.S. alone, more than $1.6 billion worldwide. Cheerleader by the Jamaican singer Omi is on track to become the most popular song of the summer, followed closely by Wiz Khalifa's See You Again. Two of the most talked about books were Ghost Set a Watchman by Harper Lee and The Girl in the Spider's Web by David Lagerkrantz, the newest installment in the Lisbeth Salander series, created by the late author Stieg Larsson. Topping the list of the most visited National Park Service sites were the Blue Ridge Parkway in Virginia and North Carolina, Great Smoky Mountains National Park in North Carolina and Tennessee, and the Golden Gate National Recreation Area in California. When it's at its hottest and you, and you step outside, it's like a punch in the face. And just how hot was it this summer? The experts say July was the hottest month worldwide since records were first kept in 1880. The average temperature around the planet, 61.86 degrees. I'm Jane Pauley. Have a good holiday. Join us here again next Sunday morning. Do you ever feel like there's nothing new in the news? You know there are urgent things happening in the world around you, but all you hear is noise. That's why we made What Next? Our goal is to tell you the stories you haven't heard before, or maybe a different side to the story you thought you already knew all about. I'm Mary Harris, the host of What Next? And I love my job because it helps me cut through the noise of the news. And then I get to bring it to you. Together, we can figure out what next.